Well, good morning, friends. Mm, Kyle gave me that gain. That is good. Take just a second and make plans to talk with those people after service. Say, we, we got to be quiet now, but we don't have to be quiet for that long. 30 minutes and we'll talk again. It is good to be with you. Man, what a dynamic morning. I was sitting up here and I almost forgot to go get my microphone. <laughs> I was just so enraptured. I had planned when Pastor Jade came up. Maybe that was the mistake, planning to go back when he came up. And I was like, I was there. And then I thought, Dusty, you're supposed to remind me to go get my microphone. I almost missed it. Great job, Brian and the worship team. Fantastic. I have two very quick announcements. The first is who knows what begins tomorrow? Table groups, come on. Somebody's been paying attention the last like eight weeks. So table groups launch this week. Table groups will be from the month of February all, th all the way through the end of the month of May. And I have good news for some, but it's going to be bad news for some of you. I believe three of our groups are already closed due to maxed out capacity, okay? Which the good news there is that many of you have been proactive in signing up. But that also means that there are three out of the eight that are already closed off. So please, please, please make it a priority for you and your family to find a table group. If you're curious how to do that, first you register on our website, midtown.newlifechurch.org. But also, if you head straight out these doors on your way to leaving the building, you'll see when you turn, there's a big, I believe, four by three map that has the placement of all of the table groups, and you'll run into it, go over there, take a look. It's the names of those who are leading each of the groups, and they're leading all nights throughout the week. So please take a look at that. And then second, who knows what's happening tonight? And don't say a football game. Family talk, family talk Kenya. We have a family talk tonight. You may be asking, what is family talk? Family talk is a quarterly gathering that we have, it's, uh, for those of you who were raised in church, it's our version, a way more fun version of a membership meeting, okay? It's a membership meeting. We don't have a traditional membership, one that you sign the dotted line. But for those of you who would say, this is my church family that I am committed here, then you are invited. So for those of you who have never been to a family talk, this is going to be a fantastic one for you to join us. It is tonight at 4 p.m. 4 to 5.30 is the meeting. And then at 5.30 after the meeting, we will be sharing a meal together. So please, once again, if this is your home church, if New Life Midtown is a place that you are committed to and invested in, then we invite you. Please come. All right. Those are the end of the announcements. Now we can get into the word. Christ is risen. Oh, thank you. Man, that was fantastic. I am elated this morning. There is so much energy. Of course, a beautiful warm day at the end of January. It elicits this kind of energy. It's fantastic. So the last two weeks, we have been in a series called Who is God? And man, I love this graphic. I think it's fantastic. I might just turn around and look at it for as long as it's up there. But this series, Pastor Brady, along with all the other congregational pastors, Pastor Jade included, months ago began praying and seeking the Lord for what the series in 2022, at least a good chunk of the first part of 2022, should look at. And they came to the consensus 
that we need to go back to the basics and talk about who God the Father is, who Christ the Son is, and who the Holy Spirit is. So from now until Pentecost, which is the first Sunday in June, every week the sermons are going to be based around who is God. And of course, this time we're in the middle of who is God the Father. And today we're going to be speaking about God the Father as gracious or the God of grace. Now, you might be thinking, I've been a believer for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Is this really important? But I want to say something that I read this week in a book written by Chris Green, who's preached here a number of times, a little book called Surprised by God. And he says that for many, God, the name God, refers to whatever it is that makes happen what we can't otherwise explain. As true as that is, it's a terrible way of talking about God. And none of us, if we got into an elevator and, tr and someone said, hey, what do you think about God? None of us would give the elevator pitch. Well, you know, really, I just use the word God to explain everything that I can't explain. Nobody would ever actually say that. But our prayers and the way that we talk about God in religious environments actually tell on us that more people believe that than would ever admit it. When we come up against something in our lives that we can't explain or something usually that's negative, difficult, problematic, we say, well, I don't know why, but God must have wanted me to go through it. What are we doing? We're saying that in the negative, I, I can't explain why God would do this, but he must have wanted me to, and I can't explain otherwise why this has happened, so it must be God's doing. And I'm not naive enough to believe that right thinking about God automatically equals great disciples. The church for hundreds and hundreds of years has lived in this place of trying to do our best to teach rightly about God. Of course we want to. But we've also learned over and over and over again that morality and holy and righteous living doesn't come from just thinking rightly about God. We want to think rightly about God, and we want to encounter this God, and we want to learn how to live with this God. And then when we come up against those things that we can't explain and we don't understand, then we hope that we will go back to the right teaching of the church and that the teaching propels us into encounter and the encounter propels us into deeper study and deeper prayer and deeper community. And so once again, we're not so naive as to think that if we say all the right things about God, then you will be perfect little Christians. As Pastor Jade said, he's been doing this 17 years and it hasn't happened yet. But maybe in year 18, it will. So I also came across a prayer this week from Meister Eckhart, who was a medieval mystic and theologian. And he says, I believe we have this on the screen. God, and, and he wrote it, as you will see it. God, as you really are, rid us of God as we imagine you to be. God, as you really are, rid us of the you that we have imagined. So who is God, God the Father? Well, we are base camping, at least for the first third of this series in Exodus 34. If you have your Bibles, if not, it will be on the screen. 
Exodus 34. We're only going to read verses 6 and 7. I'm not going to dive into the context. Pastor Jay did a wonderful job with that last week, so go back and listen to that message. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And he, this is God, speaking of God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So the first verse there in the first part of verse 7 God speaks of himself with these attributes. And we started the series off first preceding these passages with God is good. Not with his attributes, but with the core of his character. At the core of his character, before we learn to trust his power or his faithfulness or anything else, we have to know that God is good. And once we know that God is good, then we know that we can trust. And Pastor Jade last week talked about God being compassionate. He defined it as an intense emotion from the womb that leads to action. I love that. I love what he talked about, the womb, and how often, especially in the Old Testament, that compassion is related to something from the womb, from the guts, from the core of a person's being, or from the core of God's being, flows compassion. So what is grace? If God is gracious, then what does his graciousness mean for us? Or as the New Testament speaks about grace, it is more often something that is dispensed from or given from God. So what is this grace? Well, in the Old Testament, it might be defined as unmerited, generous favor. If you were raised in Sunday school, no doubt you remember that, that grace is unmerited favor. It's getting what you don't deserve, and mercy is what? From Sunday school, of course. Not getting what you deserve. And that's not wrong. There's just a lot more to it. Grace is the generous, unmerited favor of God. And in the New Testament, Paul, as a matter of fact, two-thirds of the uses of the word grace in the entire scriptures are from Paul. And he uses it almost exclusively in this way, the gracious gift of God. Grace is, it is a gift given from God graciously, tactfully, gently, kindly for our good. Grace is how God acts and what he gives of himself. Throughout the Old Testament, people ask for grace when they're asking for things like salvation, protection, provision, God's presence itself, God's favor to rest on them, mercy. All of these words that people cry out for, predominantly in the Psalms, oftentimes they will use the word grace, but they're in a circumstance where they're really asking for one of these things. God, pour out your grace in this time of need of provision. Pour out your grace when my enemies are pursuing me that I might withstand them or be delivered from them. We see this first with the story of Noah, where it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Remember, grace is unmerited, unearned favor of God that shines down on people. 
We also saw this multiple times in the series on Ruth. How many of you guys remember the Ruth series? I was almost going to joke like this is Ruth series part nine this morning, but I thought it would be lost on too many people. So there I snuck it in. Ruth with Boaz at the beginning of chapter two, she says, why have I found favor, grace, in your eyes, Boaz? Over and over again, we see in scripture this word favor, this word gift, and it is grace or a derivative of grace. So when we speak about grace, God being gracious or giving grace to his people, this is what we are talking about. Psalm 103 verses 8 and 10, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. This verse might ring a bell. We just read the origin of this verse from Exodus 34, abounding in love. And then we're going to skip verse 9, but verse 10 says, He does not treat us as our sins deserve. So in this case, grace is the withholding of wrath or the withholding of consequences. It is yet just another example of how grace takes shape and takes form in our lives. So if God is gracious, then what we mean is that God deals favorably with his creation as he gifts us what we need from his own life. That God's grace is not something that can be turned on and off with a switch like we can do. As Pastor Jade also mentioned, I believe it was last week, maybe two weeks ago, we have good days and bad days. Some of us have more good days than bad days. Some of us, depending on whether we have to go to Walmart or King Supers, have more bad days than good days. But God will never change in his essence. God has no bad days, and therefore, as was already stated, God has no good days. And God doesn't have a switch that he flips on and off where his grace is either being dispensed or being withheld. We can do that. God cannot and wouldn't, if he could, do that with his own grace. So grace is the consistent... So, so I've given you biblical definitions, but a working definition for us this morning. Grace is the consistent, generous gift that flows directly from God's own life for the sake of his creation, and it is always for our good. It is always for our good. Grace and compassion are very often tied in the Old Testament. We read it in Exodus 34. We just read it in the Psalm. Why is that? And I, I pondered this. I, I tried to find something in reading, like why are these two tied? And I couldn't. So I thought, well, I have to use my brain. I didn't want to do that, but I had to use my brain. So I thought about this all week. I've been wondering, what, what is the connection between these two very specific character traits, these two attributes of God? And I think it is something like this. God's posture toward us is compassion. And grace is how that compassion is worked out in his dealings with us. That God's posture toward us as his creation is compassion. It is this feeling of deep concern for our welfare, deep concern, dependence on him. God is well aware that we are fully dependent on him for everything. And grace is how that feeling, that posture expresses itself in our lives. It expresses itself. God's compassion as grace 
in your life and in my life and in the life of this church and in the life of his people all around the world. We might say simply that God, grace is God's compassion at work in and upon our lives. And we all have touched what this has felt like, if not in the supernatural, if not with relating to God directly, in certain ways with our relationships with one another, newborns and their parents. Is it demanding? Is it, your favorite word, exhausting? Is it, does it draw virtue and resource and energy and everything else that we have from us? Absolutely it does. But you'll often hear parents with newborns say there is a grace for it that stems from their compassion for the child. Not compassion as pity, but a compassion knowing that the welfare of this being hinges on his or her dependence on me. And then some of us, myself not included, but some in the room have experienced this with aging parents. The reverse is true. That as parents age or someone else that maybe you give care for, or maybe there are medical personnel in the room, and there is this feeling of this person's well-being is dependent on my care for them. And God feels that on an infinite level with infinitely more purity than we could ever feel those things. So that's the introduction. I have three really brief points for us, but I'm praying and I've been praying all week that there would be something awoken inside of us to begin to see God's grace in ways that we haven't seen it. Because we've all been experiencing God's grace since the day that we were born. But God, would you give us eyes to see it? And I love that in at least one of the songs this morning, it was open our eyes. So my prayer, and join me in prayer for this moment, this morning is, God, would you open our eyes to see your grace flowing from your heart of goodness and love and compassion for us that has never ceased and never will cease. Would you open our eyes this morning for the one that has known you for 50 years and for the one in this room who may feel like their relationship with you is on really shaky ground. I pray that you would open our eyes to see your grace at work. And not just today, but tomorrow morning and Tuesday morning and Wednesday evening and Thursday in that meeting and Friday when we're upset Lord, open our eyes to see your grace at work. We ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And God's people said? Amen. It's one of my favorite parts. Every Sunday I open and I say, and all God's people said, and I hear your voices. All right, so God's grace, what does it mean for us? This is Christianity 101. Grace is a gift. Number one, grace is a gift. In the ancient world, the word grace was not unique to the Jewish people or the Christians once Christians had been around a little while. Grace was a very, very common thing because in the ancient world, everyone was religious in some way. And grace was used in the same way or in a similar way, I should say, to describe the gifts that would come from the gods to humanity. So what makes Yahweh any different? Well, here is the distinction that makes Yahweh's grace different from the grace of all the other gods in the ancient world. Yahweh's grace 
was given generously and not strategically. Yahweh's grace was not given manipulatively, was not given as a way to get people to do what he wanted. All the other gods, it was understood that when the rain god poured out rain, now we owe him something. That when the war god helps us to conquer the other nation, now we owe him something. But with Yahweh, the distinction is that he dispenses grace from his essence without concern for the worth of the recipient. God knows better than anyone that we can't really offer him anything. That every good gift that we've ever given to God was first given to us from him. That we could never owe God anything. We could never really give him anything that he didn't already have. God's grace is dispensed without concern for the worth or the value, not speaking of intrinsic value, but as we think of worth and value, of what we would then be able to do for him in return. This is what makes Yahweh's grace distinct and different. Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul, I already told you that two-thirds of the uses of the word grace come from the Apostle Paul. And we're going to read a couple of verses here, and then we're going to read a few from 1 Timothy, where Paul is talking about his own calling, and I think it shines a light on this idea of grace being a gift freely given. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I'm the least important of the apostles. The apostles. I don't deserve to be called an apostle because I harassed, or some of your scriptures may say persecuted, God's church. I am what I am by God's, what church? By God's grace, and God's grace hasn't been nothing. In fact, I have worked harder than all the others. Well, that is, it wasn't me, but the grace of God that was in me or is with me. So what is Paul saying? If you don't know Paul's story, Paul was raised as a Pharisee. Paul was the most zealous he was, quote-unquote, according to him, I mean, I didn't witness this, flawless according to the law. So there is, in one sense, Paul is overqualified. But then Paul persecuted the church in his zeal, which you would think, according to human understanding, would disqualify him. So both in his overqualification and his disqualification from the work of ministry, nope, God's grace, freely given called Paul, revealed himself to Paul, opened Paul's eyes. Paul repented and now is on a mission to get all of the churches to see it's all God's grace. It's all God's grace. In one way, I was overzealous and I never should have been qualified in any sense to do this, but God's grace. And then prior to that, I was overqualified. And it wasn't at that point that God called me. It doesn't matter. Our qualifications when it comes to God's grace do not matter because God's grace is a gift given freely without regard for what we can do for him in return. First Timothy 1, 13 and 14, even though Paul, this is Paul again saying, even though I once was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And here's our word again. The grace 
of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. For Paul, it all comes down to God's grace. He knew what it was like to work hard. He knew what it was like to follow all the rules. He knew what it was like to climb the religious ladder. And you know where it got him? Nowhere. God's grace became everything to Paul once his eyes were opened to seeing that it had been God's grace all along. And there are some of us in the room, let me just pause from the notes here and say, I think I fall into this camp where I've been following the Lord such a long time that I can want to move on to other things, things that I perceive as deeper, things that I perceive as next level. And I forget that I am only at whatever place I am at right now because it was grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And there are some of you in this place who haven't yet tasted the grace and the goodness of God. Or maybe you have, but it's been a long time. And I'm praying that as we keep talking about grace, just even in the next 10 to 12 minutes, that that taste would come back. And that you would see once again that your efforts are not earning anything, that God's grace is given freely. But then point number two, grace is costly. Grace is costly. Point number one, grace is a gift. Point number two, grace is costly. This might seem like a paradox or a tension. And you know what? It is. (laughs) Most of Christianity is lived in the tension between paradoxes. Grace is costly. It is freely given, but when received, it compels us to follow him. We can never earn God's grace, but receiving it will cost us our old way of doing things. It will cost us our old way of seeing things. It will cost us our own, our old way of perceiving one another. Grace can never be earned. It is given freely. But once we receive God's grace, there is a sense in which it is demanding. It is compelling. It requires much of us. Many of you may have heard the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German theologian that was killed uh, in the era of the Nazis. And to his dying breath, he was unwavering and stood. And in his book, probably his most popular book called The Cost of Discipleship, he contrasts cheap grace and costly grace. And this is one of the things he says I think is so beautiful. He says grace is costly because it calls us to follow. But it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It's costly in that it calls us to follow. How many of you know that following anyone is difficult? It doesn't matter how great of a person that when you follow someone, whether on a backpacking trip or in a job or in a car uh, road trip, following people is difficult because people make decisions that you wouldn't make. Following anyone under any circumstance is difficult. It's costly. It it demands that you lay down some of your decision-making power, right? Some of your own thoughtfulness, some of your own resources get set aside when you follow someone else. But what's grace is that we are called as Christians not just to follow anyone, 
but to follow Jesus. And when we follow Jesus, we will be led into some difficult places. But it is always for our own life. It is always for our own good. It is costly. It is demanding, but it's always for our good. Last night, Bonnie and I um, have tried as often as possible to listen to the Lectio 365 app, which this is a plug for that, the Lectio 365 app. It's so good. There are six to 10 minute um, audible prayers with, that are infused with lots of scripture and ancient prayers. There's one every morning and one every night. So we don't do the morning one together, but we try and do the night. So we're laying there. And we're in the last minute of the prayer. I have my phone between us. Our heads are on the pillows. And I hear this line. And it did the exact opposite of enter me into sleep. It got these wheels spinning. And here was the line. He said, I I think it was Pete Gregg's voice. St. Basil's prayer from the fourth century is this. Steer the ship of my life into your quiet and safe harbor. Steer the ship, God, this is a prayer. Steer the ship of my life into your quiet and safe harbor. And you know what I thought? That gravitational pull is grace. That's grace. Whatever it is that pulls us to God, that pulls the ship of our life When our trajectory is over here, but God's safe harbor is over here, whatever it is that pulls us. And guys, nobody likes to be pulled. Nobody likes their direction to be changed. It will feel demanding. It will feel costly. But it is for your own good because you know what? God's gravitational pull is always pulling you toward himself. And there is nothing better for us than being pulled closer to God. Sometimes grace requires entering into something that we wouldn't have otherwise chosen. Zechariah 12.10 has these verses. I'm going to spare you the context, but I think that you can get it from this verse. Next, the prophet says, I'll deal, or actually God says through the mouth of the prophet. Next, I will deal with the family of David and those who live in Jerusalem. Excuse me. I'll pour out a spirit of grace and prayer over them. Just pause. Oh, doesn't that sound amazing? It does. You know what that spirit of grace and prayer is going to do? Then they'll be able to recognize me as the one that they so grievously wounded. That piercing spear thrust, and they'll weep. Oh, how they'll weep. Deep mourning as of a parent grieving the loss of the firstborn child. Not something God's people would have chosen, but it's what they needed. He poured out a spirit of grace on them so that their eyes would be open to the way that they were persecuting him. The way that they're living in sin, they're living in rebellion, was not just an affront to God, but it was cutting them off. It was quite literally disgracing them from the life of God flowing from himself into them. And God says, I'm going to pour out grace on them and open their eyes that they might see and weep and repent and turn around their ways. God's grace comes to us, and sometimes it comes as something we would not have otherwise chosen. We all know the verses, well, most of us know the verses, where Paul 
talks in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. Therefore, he says, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. Now, let me just stop you. People have been pondering over this thorn in the flesh for literally 2,000 years. So don't ponder what it was. Just know it was thorny, okay? It was thorny. And thorns are uncomfortable, all right? There was a thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But what was his response? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Sometimes, actually all the time, it's better to have difficulty with God's grace than to not have the difficulty and not need God's grace. It is always better to have whatever is in front of us as long as God's grace is resting on us and at work in us. God's grace is sufficient. Paul would not have chosen. Three times he interceded with the Lord. Take this away from me. This messenger, it was probably Silas. It was probably Silas. It was probably not Silas. In speculation, who knows? But whatever it was, it was of great anguish to Paul. It was difficult for Paul. But he was able to hear and discern the voice of the Lord saying, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Number three, first, Grace is freely given. Second, grace is costly. It is demanding. It compels us to follow Jesus. But number three, grace is fully embodied in Jesus. Grace is fully embodied in Jesus. When God lives a human life, it is the life of Jesus. God's gracious favor, the word grace, becomes a human life. And that life is the life of Jesus. Now, Jesus wasn't favored in some lucky sense. Favor is a good word to use with grace, but it doesn't mean he always got what he wanted or he always won the lotto in every sense of life. Matter of fact, if you know anything about the life of Jesus, you know that it was almost the opposite, that he lived in obscurity. Actually, he, he lived as a refugee, was always on the run early on, was poor, grew up in a town where people later would say, can anything good come from Nazareth? So much so that when Jesus started doing the supernatural things of the kingdom as a sign pointing to the Father and as to himself as the Messiah, people didn't even believe him. And their faith quenched it. Jesus was not lucky, but Jesus was favored. So what does it look like to have God's grace rest on us? but not in some sense that just means we get all that we want and everything happens to us like we're walking on clouds all the time. That was not the life of Jesus, and that's not the life you and I are dealt either. What made it graceful? What made Jesus' life graceful? His life was a gift to us, and he came to seek us, to save us, to deliver us, to heal us, to reveal the Father to us, and to restore us back into relationship with him. 1 John 14, 
1, 14 and 16, excuse me, 1 John 1. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And I love Eugene Peterson's message translation says, moved into the neighborhood. That God's own life took on the life of the creatures that he created. And when that grace walked among humanity in bodily form, experiencing all that we experience, it looked like the life of Jesus. Jesus' life was not a life of ease, but it was certainly a life of grace. The word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. From his fullness, verse 16, we have all received grace upon grace. We need God's grace to guide the ship of our lives into the safe harbor of God. Some of us have disgraced ourselves. We've closed ourselves off to his grace, whether condemnation, maybe self-hatred. Maybe our lives are so consumed with climbing some kind of ladder, with the under undergirding assumption that we will get to a place where then we will find some kind of fulfillment or whatever. There are all kinds of ways that we disgrace ourselves, meaning we cut ourselves off from the essence of life that is flowing from God's own self for us. Sometimes it's we believe that God has cut us off. Sometimes we're not cutting ourselves off as much as just living in a state of belief that says, well, God's grace would be dispensed to everyone and everything, but of course not me. And I'm here to tell you this morning that there is so much abundant, amazing grace in this place that today and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday for a thousand years couldn't exhaust it. Brian, if you would come I want to read one passage from Ephesians chapter 2, and then I'm going to read the lyrics from the old song, Amazing Grace. And my hope this morning is that we will see God's grace and experience it with fresh eyes. But Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read the first 10 verses. Paul says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live. And when you followed the ways of the world... And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time. And this is true for all of us. All of us lived among them at one time. Gratifying the cravings of our flesh. Following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Now pause. We're going to keep reading, but I want us to pause. To this point, Paul is saying, we were dead. We were living in sin. We were deserving of wrath. But God's grace wiped that away, brought us to life. That alone is enough to rejoice and to want to love and serve and follow God all the days of his, our lives. But Paul's not done because grace is not done. Watch this. 
And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places. So not only has God wiped away our past, brought us from death into new life, now God has elevated our status. He's brought us up to him in the life of his son, Jesus. It's even more amazing. In order that in the coming ages, this is my favorite part, he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. He's saying, essentially, you ain't seen nothing yet. That the grace of God has forgiven our sins. The grace of God has given us life. The grace of God is the gravitational pull that on every one of our lives right now is pulling us toward the life of God. So that in all of eternity future, he can show us more, the inexhaustible riches of his grace. That is incredible. Stand with me. I'm skipping the rest. This is too good. Paul, actually, I'm going to read these verses just because these verses are good. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from ourselves. Grace is a free gift, remember? It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Why does God do this? Why does God do this? Because he likes working with you. He likes partnering with you. Because though in the eyes of the world, most of us in this room are not very valuable, to God, he wouldn't have it any other way. As we come to receive communion this morning, Brian is gonna sing a few verses from Amazing Grace. But I thought, I've sang this at countless, not countless, I just didn't do the time to count them. Funerals, worship services, prayer rooms. We've probably all heard this song, sung this song hundreds of times. It's probably a safe bet. But this morning, can we hear it with fresh eyes? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost with no hope of being found. But now I am found. I was blind. When you're blind... What can you do about it? Absolutely nothing. But now I see. Verse 2, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. It was grace that, like the law, opened our eyes to see that there is a problem. That there's a problem. That I'm sinful. It was grace that opened my eyes to know that there was something to be afraid of. But then you know what? Grace doesn't leave us there. And grace, my fear is relieved. Grace opens our eyes to see the state of our brokenness, but also God's grace does something about it. He doesn't leave us there. Our fears are relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Verse three, through many dangers, toils and snares, the gravitational pull has pulled me through. I have already come. Tis grace, grace hath brought me safe thus far, and now we can trust. Grace will lead me home. Last verse, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. You know why? Because what we've seen now ain't nothing yet to what God is going to reveal to us about his grace in eternity future. Church, 
let us come to the table of the Lord and receive the body and the blood of Christ. Come enter out the left side of your rows and then I will lead us in partaking in communion this morning. Come to the table of the Lord. time you've received Holy Communion. Maybe it's the first, but I want to announce to you that God's grace is abundant, and it is amazing. We can use that word to where it means nothing, but in this sense, it is everything. God's grace is amazing. This wafer, we believe, is something sacramental, God is doing something at work in it when we receive it as a grace. The sacraments are a grace. This is how the church has spoken of the body and the blood for literally 2,000 years. That when you hold this in your hand, you are holding the grace of God. And when we receive it, we are trusting and believing that Christ, through the presence of the Spirit, is imparting something and doing something on the inside of each and every one of us that we might not even know we need. And so with this in your hand, would you break it? On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, church. Let us receive the body of Christ. Does anyone know what the last verse in scripture is? the end of the book of Revelation, John's apocalyptic vision of Christ, the very last thing that he says, the grace of the master Jesus be with all of you. May the grace, this is Eugene's, this is Eugene's, and then he says, oh yes, and he leaves us with that, oh yes, with an exclamation point. So church, with the blood of Christ in our hands, Jesus says this, Where am I at here? I know this, but I'm so distracted right now. (laughs) This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Church, let us receive the blood of Christ shed for you and for me. 
now let us close by singing the doxology together. Brian has made a special request that at the end we complete it by singing the amen. Okay, friends? So praise God. All right, let's sing it together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And all together we sing. Amen. Go in the grace and peace that is abundant of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, you are dismissed.